certainly a pleasure. I trust we counted a, a blessing to be able to be in the house of the Lord, and I trust to be built up as spiritual stones, a spiritual house to offer up spiritual sacrifices, as Peter uh, related to us in uh, his epistles. Um, this morning, uh, my mind's led onto a subject of um, the divine preservation of the saints in a state of grace. This is referred to many times as uh, once saved, always saved, the doctrine of eternal security, uh, the divine perseverance of the saints in grace. Sometimes it's said divine preservation. <clears throat> um, sometimes I think when we speak on this subject, we there's some overlap into the doctrine of sanctification. When I talk about, if I talk this morning about divine perseverance of the saints in a state of grace, I'm talking about that word perseverance is found in the Bible one time. It's in the book of Ephesians where we're supposed to persevere in prayer. That means we're to continue. Perseverance means a continuance. So when I say perseverance of the saints in a state of grace, I'm talking about a continuance of the saints in a state of grace, that is, in a saved state. Once you have eternal life, uh, you have eternal life. Once you have everlasting life, you have everlasting life. And we're going to see that he gives eternal life, the Lord gives eternal life through the uh, work of quickening or the new birth, where God speaks and you live and you have spiritual life. Spiritual life is equated with eternal life, everlasting life. Um, <clears throat> when I <clears throat> said a while ago that sometimes we may mix pr uh, preservation with sanctification, when I'm talking about, <clears throat> if I say the word perseverance or preservation, um, <clears throat> sometimes we can get into the realm of sanctification. You know, how are God's children going to live? Are they going to persevere in good works? Are they going to have, you know, the Bible tells us that describes God's children as having a patient continuance in well-doing, Romans 2, 5. Uh, Romans 8 talks about they that, mind, they that are after the Spirit mind the things of the Spirit. Galatians um, Galatians chapter 5, verse 24, talks about they that are Christ have crucified the flesh with the affections and lusts. God's children, according to Jesus in Matthew chapter 7, he said, every good tree bringeth forth good fruit. What I'm trying to say is there's going to be a measure of sanctification in all of God's born-again children of God. It's not going to be, it's going to be somewhere between Zero and a hundred percent obedience. It's not going to be zero. It's not going to be a hundred percent either. We never attain to the position that we have no sin, and uh, sin's going to be in our members, and we're going to fall and continue to fall uh, until the Lord takes us home to be with Him. So I want to talk about, and I only bring this up because I think sometimes people think about the doctrine of perseverance is somehow. It's through how we live that we 
continue to uh, ensure that we're in the grace of God. And it doesn't work that way. It's the being in the grace of God and having eternal life is that which puts us in a position to serve the Lord and enables us to serve the Lord. We don't persevere in a state of grace through keeping the law or trying to do that which is right inside the Lord or any of that. And that's not my subject today. But I'll just tell you, um, if you, uh, you know, you, we could go to the book of Galatians and talk extensively about how sometimes some people of the Lord fell back into a work system. To, uh, you know, sometimes people say, well, salvation is all by grace and we're saved by grace. But then sometimes we can fall into this little thing of, thinking that our continuance to serve God is what keeps us in a state of grace. And that's not what keeps us in a state of grace. Doesn't do it. All right? So we talk about once saved, always saved. We talk about the doctrine of eternal security. We talk about the divine preservation or perseverance of the saints in a state of grace. We're basically saying that once God... uh, Philippians 1, six says, He that hath begun good work in you will perform it under the day of Jesus Christ. You're God's child forever. You've been adopted into God's family. You've been born of the Spirit of God. You have eternal life, and you shall never perish. We're, uh, I've used the word preserved a few times. Let's just look and see if the Bible teaches uh, this great doctrinal truth that we're preserved in grace. And we're preserved, Why? Not because of what we're doing, but because of what the Lord's done for us. All right. Let me just say this before we go. We're going to go to Jude to start out with. Um, but let me just say this. If people, it makes sense. You know, there are different groups of people that believe you can fall out of a state of grace. Or you can once have eternal life and then somehow you can lose that eternal life. And you go back to being a dead, depraved individual. You can have life at one moment and then you lose it. Well, I'm going to say this, that if it makes sense, though, that if I teach a view of salvation or a plan of salvation that's dependent upon human efforts, that I have to do this or this or that other thing to obtain eternal life, then it makes sense I could do something to lose it. If I've got to do something to get it, it makes sense to me in my mind that I probably could do something to lose it. You see what I'm saying? But we don't do this, that, or the other in order to give, to get life, to get eternal life or to be born of the Spirit of God. I've said before, I'll say it again, there's lots of, you know, ideas of men. There's, I see little leaflets and tracts that says, you know, here's the plan to, to, here's how you can obtain eternal life and be born of the Spirit of God. And you repent of your sins, you believe that Christ died, you know, there's a, there's a, a sequence and sometimes there's a four-step plan, five-step plan and you end up by saying this prayer and bingo, you've got eternal life and, and that's foreign from the scriptures. Uh, God, Jesus, had a one-step plan. If you want to read that, go to John chapter 5, verse 26, I believe, or verse 25. He says, that the hour is coming now is when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God and they that hear shall live. He speaks and you live. That's God's one-step plan of salvation for dead sinners is he speaks to the dead faculties of their soul and they live. And that's a step that God's doing, not man. And once God's given life, 
then we're a new creature in Christ. All things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. The love of God is shed abroad in our hearts. God places his fear in our heart. There's some things he equips us with and our eyes are open to know that he is the one with whom we have to do. There's a knowing of God that God gives by direct revelation. That's why he says over in Hebrews chapter 8 where he says, You shall not tell every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. There's a teaching that only comes from God and it comes from God straight to the center and he opens us, uh, our eyes. We're not very knowledgeable about a lot of things. The new birth doesn't educate us in a lot of things other than that we know that there is a God and he's the one that I'm accountable to. But at that time, uh, <clears throat> we find that sin becomes can become exceeding sinful. <clears throat> Regeneration. The eternal life, when a person is conferred upon them by God, gives them eternal life, it doesn't make them feel real good. All right? They're at that point, they're not rejoicing in the Savior's love in the new birth. They start seeing themselves a guilty, vile sinner in the sight of a thrice holy God. And they're more like the publican in Luke 18. God be merciful unto me, a sinner. He didn't feel real good. But he ended up in his conversion, if you will. He went down to his house justified. Rejoicing, you see. Regeneration makes us feel real bad. When God blesses us in conversion to see Christ who loved me and died for me, then that sets me up on a cloud. That, that lifts me up. That encourages me. And I can rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory because I understand that He loved me and He gave Himself for me. But the new birth, my friends, gives, in the new birth, God gives eternal life. You're quickened from a death in sins to a life in Christ. And we see that in Ephesians chapter 2 verse 1. Paul writes to the faithful in Christ Jesus who that book's written to. And he says in 2, 1, And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and in sin. Where in time past you walked according to this course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, and, and this spirit that now worketh in the children of, uh, of <coughs> disobedience. So we're all by nature the children of wrath before God quickens us into life, all right? But if I have to do some steps and through human efforts, some things in order to attain that life, then it's probably I could do something that would get that life taken away. That makes sense to me. But the truth of the Bible is, tells us that once a person has eternal life, they have life. Because God gave that life and he sustains that life under the end. All right? We're going to look. Let's look in Jude. <coughs> the book of Jude, verse 1. And I just want to, I want you to get this because it says the word. He says, Jude, the servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to them that are sanctified by God the Father and preserved in Jesus Christ and called. You're preserved in Jesus Christ. All right? And you continue to be preserved. Let's look. Let's look at an Old Testament scripture just for a minute. We're just going to look, and I'm just trying to tell you that it's scriptural to talk about preservation of the saints. Because the Bible tells us that we're preserved. And I don't know about you, but I like to use Bible words to explain Bible things. You go into the Ecclesiastes, the last chapter, it says the preacher sought to find acceptable words. And that which he found was that which was written. God already has his words written. We ought to use Bible words. I really enjoy uh, hearing some of you 
pray. You know, you can tell people who's been spending time in the Word because they use biblical words, biblical phrases. I like to see that. All right? We can't improve upon God's words. He used the word preserved. We're preserved. What does that mean? We're preserved. All right, let's tar- look at the scripture over here in Psalms 37. <coughs> in Psalms 37, we're going to see that word used again. Verse 28 says, For the Lord loveth judgment and forsaketh not his saints. You know what a saint is? It's a sanctified one. All right? It's a sanctified one. What are all the epistles written to? To the saints which are at Ephesus. To the saints at the church of, at Corinth. To the saints. They're sanctified ones, which means they've been made holy by God. Not that they live all their life holy and don't do anything wrong. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about these are a sanctified, set apart unto God. They're the people of God, the saints of God. It says here, verse 28, For the Lord loveth judgment and forsaketh not his saints. They are preserved forever, but the seed of the wicked shall be cut off. Here we see that the saints are preserved forever. All right? Well, you know, that's, well, that, that, that pretty much proves it. Well, let's go on. There's a lot more the Bible has to say on this truth. All right? So let's turn to 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. First Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 23. <coughs> and the very God of peace sanctify you wholly. And I pray God your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless under the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Here is Paul's prayer. He says, I pray. All right. He says, <coughs> he says, I pray God your whole spirit and soul and body. People, as you know, we're made up in our physical, in our, in our person. We have a spirit, a soul, and a body. Okay? That comprise us. In corporal death, the spirit and soul depart from this body. And we're left with this tabernacle of clay. God is saying, I pray God your whole spirit and soul and body. The whole complete person. Be preserved blameless under the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Someone says, well, that's just his prayer. Well, keep reading. Yeah, that was his prayer. I pray, God, your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless under the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But then he says, faithful is he that calleth you who will also do it. See, that wasn't just a wish. It wasn't just a prayer, which prayer is not a wish. It wasn't just a wish because a wish is not a prayer. But it wasn't just his prayer. But it's also said, faithful is he that calleth you who will also do it. That is saying that God will keep you and preserve you blameless, body, soul, and spirit, under the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Sounds like you're secure to me. Sounds like you have, uh, your life, your spiritual life is preserved. He is going to preserve you blameless. He's preserving you. He does that all the time. We're kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, says in Peter. All right? We're kept by the power of God. God keeps us by His power in 
a state of grace or salvation. And the Bible uses the words preserved. We'll be preserved blameless under the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Yes, the Bible teaches the eternal security of the saints. We're preserved in Jesus Christ and called. He says there in Psalms again, 37, 28, He forsaketh not His saints. They are preserved forever. Preserved blameless. All right. <coughs> but there's other... <coughs> excuse me. <coughs> but there's other places which teach this truth. All right, let's look at some of them. We're going to be preserved, be preserved blameless under the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is he that calleth you who will also do it. All right? I mentioned something about God giving eternal life. All right, let's, let's look. Let's look at a place over here. Let's go to uh, John chapter 5. Now, we just quoted verse 25 a while ago, talking about how God gives people the new birth. He quickens them. Look in verse 21. It says, The Son quickeneth whom He will. For as the Father raiseth up the dead and quickeneth them, even so the Son quickeneth whom He will. It's taught in a lot of circles. If you'll just get willing, the Lord will quicken you. It just says that the, that the Lord quickens whom He wills. At his own appointed time. And he talks about it in verse 25. He says, The time is coming, the hour is coming, and now is. Verily, verily, I say unto you, The hour is coming, and now is, when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God, and they that hear shall live. You say, Well, he's, maybe he's talking about the end time at the resurrection. Well, we know that's not what he's talking about because about three or four verses later he covers that. Look down there in verse 29. Or verse 28, marvel not at this, for the hour is coming in which all that are in the grave shall hear his voice and come forth. See, that's a, a, a that's being raised from a corporal death. All the graves are going to, all that are in the graves are going to come forth in that time. But there's another time that God raises us from a death in sins and quickens us and gives us spiritual life, gives us eternal life. It's when God sees fit and he comes and he speaks and you live. It's like Ezekiel chapter 16, the poor little baby, that, the baby that was uh, uh, polluted in his own blood, cast out. It says the Lord passed by, it is a time of love, and he said, live, and the child lived. God raises people from the dead. Not only out of the ground, but from a death in sins. And you have he quickened, that means made alive, who were dead in trespasses. And in sin. That's the only way you're going to get... People write people write books on how to be born again. Well, I can just give you one verse. He speaks and you live. You have the quickened who were dead. Alright. Now, now let's look at the verse above that. Now he says, he, Verily, verily, I say unto you, the hour is coming in which they... He says, hour is coming when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God and they that hear shall live. So we've already established he's not talking about living a corporal life back out of the grave. He's talking about something else. 
talking about being spiritually dead. Now let's get the verse above that. It says in verse 24, Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life. Now it says that if you... What? What do you say? He says, He that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me If that's true of you, I can tell you something about you. You have everlasting life. That's what he said. Those things are evidences of a person that has everlasting life. They hear his word and believe on him that sent him. Guess what? Those people, that's a description of people that have everlasting life. He didn't say, it's not put in there as a proposition. If you'll do this, you'll get life. He says, if you do these things, you have life. It's kind of like 1 John 5, 1. So whosoever believeth that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. You're not going to believe that Jesus is the Christ uh, unless you're already born of the Spirit of God. Unless God has come and quickened you where you have the eyes to see and heart to understand who He is. You'll never understand. You'll, you'll, you'll ne- God has never quickened people on the basis of them believing that Jesus is the Christ. Never has. Because you can't believe that Jesus is a Christ unless you've been born of the Spirit of God. Alright? So, he says, but he says, He that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. You know what he just said? If you have everlasting life, you shall not come into condemnation. That means you can't have everlasting life and then lose it and be condemned to hell. Later on. Because those that have everlasting life, guess what? Everlasting life is everlasting. I don't understand about an everlasting life that's not everlasting. An eternal life that's not eternal. Makes no sense, does it? If it's everlasting life, then it's everlasting. And Jesus said, you shall not come into condemnation. But you're passed from death, spiritual death, unto spiritual life. Once you've got spiritual life, you'll never come into condemnation because you have life. And he preserves you in that state, that good state of grace and spiritual life. Who do you think it is that sustains your natural life? In Brother Preach, uh, in his prayer, <clears throat> mentioned in him we live and move and have our very being. There's also a scripture that says in him is the breath of all mankind, is the life of all mankind and the breath of every living thing. I kind of botched that. But he holds our soul in life. He sustains our natural life. Well, who do you think sustains our spiritual life? You think it's us? No, it's God. It's God. And he says, I'm going to sustain your spiritual life into the end. Preserve us blameless under the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is he that calleth you who also do it. So here we see we, we can't come into condemnation. If we go to John chapter 10. Verse 27, my sheep hear my voice, I know them and they follow me. And I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. 
Here we find Jesus. And you think Jesus probably knows something about all this, right? He's the Savior, right? Jesus says, guess what? These have eternal, these have everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation. Who would I be to say, no, Lord, you're wrong? I mean, these are matter of fact statements. He says, you have eternal life. You have everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation. Here he says, I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. You know, the Lord made the point. He could have just said, I give them eternal life. End of sentence. He could have said there in John chapter 5 verse 24, Whosoever heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life. Period. End of sentence. And we could go away thinking, well, you know, what do we make out of that? He's good. He, people have everlasting life. They have eternal life. Period. Well, I could, I, I should be able to get from that that it's everlasting and eternal. But he didn't stop there. He makes the point of saying, these have everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation. But they're passed from death unto life. He, he is hunkering down on this truth. They're not going to come into condemnation. That's what it means. They have everlasting life. I give unto them eternal life and guess what? They shall never perish. I mean, he's just bolstering on down on the point, hammering it home, you see. The reason he said those things, because they're true. Yeah, you have eternal life. What does that mean? You're never going to perish. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my Father's hand. My Father and I, uh, my Father which gave them me is greater than all. No man shall pluck them out of... I give unto them eternal life. They shall never perish. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My Father which gave them me is greater than all. And no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. I mean, he went into the extreme language there to say, look, you're in the hand of the Father and you're in my hand and you're never going to be plucked out. You have eternal life, you're never going to perish. Not going to come into condemnation, never going to perish, can't be plucked out. No, never plucked out of his hand. That sounds like pretty good security. You're in God's hand, you're Christ's hand and God's hand. It's double-handed. He's got you. He keeps you because he loves you. We find the Apostle Paul in John chapter 8 talks about the love of God. Nothing will ever separate us from the love of God. Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, verse 35, the question is asked. He says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress? Or persecution? Or famine? Or nakedness? Or peril? Or sword? As it is written, for thy, day, for thy sake we are killed all the days long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come nor height nor death nor any other creature 
shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Nothing's going to separate us from the love of God. All right, just another statement. Talking about God's love for us. He says in Jeremiah 31, verse 2, verse 3, he says, I have loved thee with an everlasting love. His love's everlasting. How long does it last? Continues on. Nothing's ever going to separate us from that love. That's another evidence of the preservation of the saints in a state of grace. He's loved us with an everlasting love. Will never come into condemnation. Shall never perish. No one's able to pluck us out of his hand. All those affirmative statements. And God's never, you know, we say, well, you know, maybe no one can pluck out, but maybe God can just kind of cast you away. Well, he doesn't ever cast you away because uh, he loves you. As a matter of fact, over in John chapter 6, verse uh, 37, he says, All that the Father giveth me shall come to me, and he that cometh unto me I will in no wise cast out. He says he's not going to cast out any of those. Uh, God isn't going to cast away his people. You know, Jesus came into the world. We find in Matthew chapter 1, verse 21, as the angel told Mary, um, uh, Joseph, Fear not to take unto thee Mary thy wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost, and she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. So he has a people. He came to save his people from their sins, and I believe he saved everyone that the Father gave him to give them eternal life, and they're never going to perish. In other words, he saved them all. He was successful in his death to save his people from their sins, which speaks of the doctrine of election. All right, so we see he shall save his people from their sins. In Psalms chapter 94, verse 14, says, For the Lord will not cast off his people. Christ came to save his people. And this text says in Psalms 94, verse 14, he says, For the Lord will not cast off his people, neither will he forsake his inheritance. Here we see that he's not going to cast off his people. You want a New Testament reference to that? You can go over there to about uh, uh, Romans chapter eleven, verse two. It says, uh, "God will not cast away His people, which He foreknew." So God's not going to cast away His people. All right. And something else He's not going to do. Um, he's never going to turn away from you to do you good. Go to Jeremiah chapter thirty-two, verse forty. It says, "This is the covenant." Uh, that I will make of the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord. <clears throat> he says, uh, let me go over and read that so I can get it right. <clears throat> well, if I can find it. I'm sorry, this is Jeremiah 32, verse 40. And I will make an everlasting covenant with them that I will not turn away from them to do them good. But I will put my fear in their hearts that they shall not depart from me. All right, there's the effect of what God's done. He puts his fear in their heart. By the fear of the Lord, we depart from evil. There's a sense in which we don't turn away from the Lord because we have that fear of the Lord in our heart at all times. But my friends, that is one of the 
basis for sanctification and how we live our life. But notice what he said. He said, I will make an everlasting covenant with them that I will not turn away from them to do them good. The Lord's never going to turn away from you to do you good. Think about that. Never turn away from you to do you good. He's never going to cease doing good for you because He loves you with an everlasting love. He's never going to cast you off. He's never going to cease doing good for you. Once you have eternal life, and that's why you're not going to come into condemnation, you're never going to perish. You're secure in Christ. <clears throat> What's some things the Lord's... <clears throat> let's, let's, let's just keep going a little further. Let's go to John. Chapter 6. John chapter 6. <coughs> We've already quoted verse 37. All that the Father giveth me shall come to me, and he that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. The Lord will not cast out his people. Taught in the Old Testament, taught in the New Testament. All right? He says, for I came down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of the Father which has sent me. And this is the will of the Father which has sent me, that of all which he hath given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up again the last day. How many is he going to lose? He's not going to lose one of them. They're going to continue in a state of grace. To the end, he's not going to lose a one of them. He's not going to lose a one of them. Y'all, you ever lost anything? I have. Sometimes I lose my phone. Sometimes I've lost my billfold, checkbook, keys. Sometimes I lose stuff. All right? The Lord's not going to lose any, any one of you that are his. He's not forgetful like we are. You know, there's over here in Isaiah chapter 49... Verse 15, there's a question asked, says, because uh, <clears throat> Zion actually said this in the way they lived and, and acted. Verse 14, they said, the Lord hath forsaken me, the Lord hath forgotten me. You ever feel that way? Like the Lord's forgotten you? Never has. You just don't have good eyesight at that moment. You don't have good perception at that moment. Because the Lord maybe is leaving you uh, alone a little bit, but the Lord had never forgotten you. We're on his mind continually. His thoughts towards us are thoughts of peace and not of evil. Give us an expected end. The Lord doesn't forget. So the Lord asked the question. They said, Lord, you've forgotten me. He says, verse 15, Can a woman forsake her suckling child that she should not have compassion on the son of her womb? Can a woman forget her children? Yeah. Sometimes they leave in a hot car at the Walmart or someplace. And that doesn't always mean they're bad parents. They just mean they forgot. All right? You can have some good people that forget stuff. All right? But I'm telling you, we can forget stuff. God says, though, and he actually says, can a woman forget her child? Yes, he can. He says, 
Can a woman forget her sucking child that she should not have compassion on the son of her womb? Yea, they may forget, yet will I not forget thee. He says, I won't forget you. Even though this may happen. And you may think, you may think, well, there's no woman out there that's going to really forget her baby. Maybe, unless she's negligent. All right? I'm not going to debate on that. I'm going to say this. It can happen, right? You would think, though, that it would never happen, right? I mean, this is a baby that she's nursing, and how can you forget that baby? Well, you know what? You say, well, that's hard to forget. I don't see how any woman could forget. Well, it's just that much harder for the Lord to forget. He said, the, you know, this can happen, but the Lord will never forget you. You contrast that. The Lord will never forget you. Never will. He goes on and he says, Behold, I have graven thee upon the palms of my hands, and thy walls are continually before me. We're continually before the Lord. The Lord doesn't have a memory problem. The Lord doesn't forget us and gonna somehow in the, the thick of life that we're lost. He says, This is the will of the Father which has sent me, that of all which he hath given me, I should lose nothing, but raise it up again at the last day. So we find all these statements. God will not turn away from us to do us good. He'll not forget us. He'll not lose us. He'll not cast us away. We shall not come into condemnation and we shall never perish and no man can pluck us out of the Father's hand and there's no nothing in the earth beneath, he- heaven above or earth beneath or any other creature that shall ever separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. can't happen. That's pretty secure. That's real secure. We're engraven on the palms of his hands. We're ever before him. And he takes care of it. He says, also says, I'll never leave thee nor forsake thee. Now, if he's never going to leave you nor forsake you, he's never going to leave you nor forsake you. You are his. You're bought and paid for. Christ came into the world to die for his children that they would live together with him and nothing's going to thwart that effort, that purpose, the atonement of Christ. You realize election, all those for whom were chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. Let's, let's go, let's talk about that for a minute. The purpose and end point of election. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 4. Verse 3 says, Blessed be the God and our Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ, according as He hath chosen us in Him before the foundation of the world. For what purpose? That we would stand holy and without blame before Him in love. You may see a practical application in that. Right now, but I'm going to tell you the time is going to come where we perfectly will stand perfectly without sin and without blame before Him in love. When these vile bodies are changed in fashion like in His own glorious body, that's the end point of election. And I'm going to tell you that God's, God does what he wants to do. What he chooses to do. And he's declared the end, Isaiah 46, he's declared the end from the beginning and from ancient times the things that are not yet done saying, my counsel shall stand and I will do all my 
pleasure. How much of your pleasure going to do, Lord? All my pleasures. Well, part of his pleasure was to save the people from their sins. He's going to get it all done. Those that were chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world, that we should stand holy without blame before him in love. One of these days, body, soul, and spirit, we're going to be completely separated. We're going to be uh, separate from sin, and we're going to stand in the presence of our Lord. That was the end of point of election is that we would stand before him in love. And not a one of them is going to be lost. All right? Let's go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. (coughs) And what I'm trying to present to you right now is I guess it's a, a, a logical inference, okay, that if you understand that God is a sovereign and that he does his will in the armies of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth and none can stay his hand or say to him, what doest thou? Or Ephesians 1.11, he worketh all things out of the counsel of his own will. In other words, if God is actually going to do what he purposes to do, then we know none of them is going to be lost, Okay. And we see here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. In verse 6. I'm sorry, let's, let's start in verse uh, 8. But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet the hope of salvation. For God hath not appointed us to wrath, But to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with Him. Now, now I want to look at that just because I like this text, okay? This text is saying that we should live, be sober-minded, trying to serve the Lord, Put on for a breastplate the the, uh, faith and love and for a helmet the hope of salvation. I don't have time to get into what all the context here is other than he is saying that we should arm our minds, which Satan's always trying to get into, all right? We should arm ourselves with the hope of salvation. Now, hope in the Bible isn't talking about a wish. It's an expectation, it's an expectation. You tell people, uh, I can quote scripture says, we're saved by hope. I told somebody that one time, you're not saved by hope. What are you talking about? Well, they're not very familiar with their Bibles, all right? I mean, we're saved by hope. That's, there's a teaching in the Bible, we're saved by hope. But anyway, hope is an expectation. It's an expectation. And we're supposed to put on the, for a helmet, the hope or expectation of salvation as we live here, okay? And he's going on, and the point is, He tells us why should you have an expectation of salvation. And the reason I bring this up is this text would make no sense at all if I didn't believe, if I believe that you could have eternal life and be saved one day, but then the next day you can't. Because I wouldn't have an expectation of salvation. You know why some people have an expectation of salvation? Because they're leaning on their own works. Their own righteousness they think they have. 
They have an expectation of salvation. If I can just do more good on my scale than bad, then I'll be accepted of the Lord. We're talking about why do you have an expectation of salvation? Why do I? If it's works-based, and I can get it, and then when I take the scales tip, I lose it, or whatever, I would have no expectation of salvation for the reason that he says we should. We're to put on for a helmet the hope of salvation. He says, for God hath not, it's what God's done. For God hath not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ. That means He's appointed us to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ. That ought to be good enough right there. I mean, if the Lord says, I have appointed you to salvation, wouldn't that be enough based on that to expect salvation? If the Lord says, I have appointed you to salvation, that's great. Well, I'd expect it then, right? But how did He appoint us to this salvation? He didn't appoint us to wrath but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, whether alive or dead, that we should live together with Him. That text is saying that if Christ, the way He appointed you to salvation, is that Christ died for you for the purpose that you would live together with Him. Of course, I understand there's all, all kinds of people who believe that Christ died for people that's not going to live together with Him. But <clears throat> understanding the doctrines of grace that God gave a people to Christ to give eternal life to. Go read John 17. Father, Jesus prays in third person. Father, thou hast come, glorify thy Son, that thy Son may also glorify thee. As thou hast given Him power over all flesh, that He should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given Him. I tell people, I know, I can tell you, I can tell you exactly how many people's gonna be in heaven. As many as the Father gave the Son. I mean, I don't know the number. But all that the Father gave the Son to give eternal life to, that's who's gonna have eternal life. And it is eternal life. It continues on. Alright? My sheep, I give unto them eternal life. They shall never perish. It means the Father gave the Son. The Father gave the Son some sheep. But anyway, Maybe get that in just a minute. But here this text says, God hath not appointed you to wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with Him. And if any of you think, well, you know, the Bible just says, you should, then say you're going to. It says you should. You know, sometimes in the, the way we use our words, a lot of times we use the word should. Uh, the Bible uses the word should a lot of times in a different way than we use it today. A lot of times, like in this instance, that's the future tense of shall. He's saying that Christ died for us, that we shall live together with Him. We're going to live together with Him. That is the teaching. A lot of times we use the word should. You know, I, you, know you, should, uh, uh, you should go to the doctor when you're sick. doesn't mean you will, but it means you ought to. I should brush my teeth at night so I don't have my teeth rot out. I should do this or I should do that. We're usually using it to mean we ought to do this or we ought to do that. And I believe there's times in the Bible God uses it that way. But there's a large portion of times God uses the word should as the future tense of shall. It's like will, would, shall, should. Okay? 
It's not, it didn't mean ought. For instance, when it says in Galatians chapter 1 verse 10, it says, for do I now persuade men or God? Or do I seek to please men? Listen, he says, for if I yet pleased men, I should not be the servant of Christ. If I yet pleased men, you know, a man pleaser becomes a servant of men because I do what man wants. If I'm just pleasing man, I'm not serving the Lord anymore. I'm serving the man. All right. But he says, if I yet pleased men, I should not be the servant of Christ. How many of you think that text is saying, if I please men, I ought not be the servant of Christ? Makes no sense. No, you ought to be the servant of Christ. Whether you break down and, 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 and serve men rather than him in a moment of weakness or not. He's saying, if we serve men, if we do that, well, guess what? You shall not be the servant of Christ. In other words, you're serving men. You're not serving the Lord. He's not saying you ought not serve Christ. You think that teaches in the Bible? Hey, guess what? You shouldn't serve Christ if you live in this, you know, if you're going to please men. That makes no sense. It's not meaning ought. In John 3.16, when it says, whosoever, it says, it says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth on him should not perish. Does that mean, that's just saying the believer ought not perish? You think that's what it's saying? No. He's saying the believer's not going to perish. He should not perish. In the future, he will not perish. A believer in Christ will not perish. See the idea? The same sense is true here. God hath not appointed you to wrath, but He's he's appointed you to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us that we should live together with Him. In other words, that's going to be the end result of Christ dying for His children. All those for whom Christ died are going to end up on the right hand. And hear the words... Come ye blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And you know why they are, they make it all the way to the end? Because they're preserved in grace. They have eternal life. It shall never, they're never going to perish. He sustains you in that life. He keeps you in that life. He never turns away from you and you good. You shall not come into condemnation. You're passed from death unto life. No man's able to pluck you. You can't be separated out of His love. He keeps you. In the state of spiritual life. He sustains your spiritual life even unto the end. I pray God your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless unto the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is he that calleth you who will also do it. If you want to see a picture which proves the divine preservation of the saints, that it's occurred in time, all we have to do is compare a couple of scriptures and we'll do in closing. Let's go to John chapter 10. John chapter 10 and Matthew chapter 25. John chapter 10 and Matthew 25. John chapter 10. We've already been over there. Where he says, verse 27, My sheep hear my voice, I know them, they follow me. I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. Right? Talking about the sheep. No, by the way, not everybody's a sheep. And sometimes people have a miss, they miss, I think they misunderstand sheep and goats. Okay? They think that a a goat is representative of, of a depraved uh, of a depraved person. 
so that they, which all goats are depraved, but I mean all sheep are depraved too at one time. In other words, a lot of people think in the new birth you're changed from a goat to a sheep. Not so. A sheep is indicative of his people, the elect, the sheep of his pasture. All right? And I say that because in John chapter 10, we find there's spoken of, you know, some, some came to Christ on one occasion. It says right above 27 there where we've been looking back. Uh, I lost my page here in John, in John chapter 10. But if you go like in John chapter 10, verse 24, it says, Then came the Jews round about him, Jesus, that is, as he's walking in Solomon's porch. Then came the Jews round about him and said unto him, How long dost thou make us to doubt? If thou be the Christ, tell us plainly. He says, I told you, and you believe not. But the works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me. But you believe not because you're not of my sheep. Jesus just said, guess what? There's people in the world that aren't sheep. That's what he just said. And then he goes on and says, my sheep hear my voice, I know them. And guess what? I give unto them eternal life. And they shall never perish. But he's just acknowledged that there's not everybody in the world are sheep. Yeah, we're talking about a limited or particular atonement. Christ died for the sheep to come to save his people from their sins. Here's the sheep. Those for whom Christ died. I'll say this. All for whom Christ died, at some point in their life, they're going to be born of the Spirit of God and they were going to continue to have their spiritual life preserved unto the end and they're going to go be with the Lord. Because he appointed them to obtain salvation by the Lord Jesus Christ who died for them that they should live together with him. What's going to thwart that? What's going to prevent that? The purpose is I'm going to die for these that they'll live together with me. The Father gave the Son. He says, the Father giveth the Son power over all flesh that he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. Uh, who are they? The sheep of God. God gave him this people to give eternal life to. And he quickeneth whom he will. He quickens them into life at some point, and he takes them home with him. But what I want you to see here in John chapter 10, if we go to verse 11, we're going to see those for whom Christ died. What does he say? I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd giveth his life for the sheep. Verse 15, as the Father knoweth me, even so know I the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. Who did he die for? He died for the sheep, even though in the same chapter he said there's some that are not of his sheep. But I died for the sheep. That's the elect, those given to the Son to give eternal life to, to die for, to die for, who died for us, that we should live together with him. What's going to stop that? You're never Those for whom Christ died, none of them is going to fall out. None of them is going to be lost. He's going to carry them all on to glory in a saved state and live with him forever. And if you want proof of that, let's just go to the end where Matthew 25, when he says, verse 31, when the Son of Man shall come in his glory. And these are all Jesus' teachings, by the way. It's all words in red. We ought to really, uh, I mean, all the words of the Bible are true, but if you happen to be one that just believes the words in red, this is what Jesus said. He said, for the Son of Man, when the Son of Man shall come in his glory and all the holy angels with him, then shall he sit upon the throne of his glory. And before him shall be gathered all nations, and he shall separate them one from another, as the shepherd divideth his sheep from the goats. Then shall the king say unto them on his right hand, Come, ye blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. All nations are going to be gathered, sheep and goats, those for whom Christ died and those for whom he did not. And you're going to have sheep on the right hand, goats on the left. 
Go back. I said compare two scriptures. You go to John chapter 10, verse 11 and 15, that Christ, the good shepherd, gaveth his life, laid down his life for the sheep. Combine that with 1 Thessalonians 5, 10, that he died for us, that we live together with him. We see the fulfillment and conclusion of the whole matter. At the day of days, when God calls this thing to an end, all nations are gathered before him. He's going to separate, put the sheep for whom he died that he gave eternal life to, that's never going to perish. We see the sheep on the right-hand side, and they're going to hear the words, Come, you blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared from the foundation of the world. He didn't lose a one in the way. He died for the sheep, and they're all on the right-hand side. And hear the words, Come, ye blessed. Why are they there? Because they're so good? No. Because they're saved by the grace of an almighty, loving God. Who sent his son to die for us. For what purpose? Verse Thessalonians 5.10. That we would live together with him. And he who works his will on the armies of heaven. And among the inhabitants of the earth. That's his purpose. His end point for the redemption and the atonement of Jesus Christ. Was that these people would live together with him. There's nothing going to stop that. Nothing at all. They'll never come into condemnation. Never perish. No man's able to pluck them. He'll never turn away from them to do them good because He's loved them with an everlasting love and nothing shall separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And we'll be home with Him forever and ever and ever, not because of anything we've done or merited. Our wages of sin is death. What we deserve is death. We sing the song. A heart of grace can sing the song. If my soul were sent to hell, Thy righteous law approves it well because we know what we deserve. And that what, that's what makes grace so amazing. Amazing grace that saved a wretch like me. May God richly bless you is my prayer.